This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program, there's a growing concern over cyber attacks carried out by nation states. Everybody was expecting when cyber was used in warfare that there would be some cataclysmic major humanitarian impact of the use of cyber. From the nation's power grid to online banking, the U.S. economy is utterly reliant on the Internet. What has come out clearly from the conflict in Ukraine and Russia is just the scale and the extent of cyber operations, which are happening way beyond the boundaries of those countries, the frontiers of those countries, and affecting many others. The United Nations was the target of a hacking operation that included complex cyber attacks on its human rights offices in Geneva and Vienna. Warfare today is also being raged around this information space. So what's the best way to counter that? Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of moderating a debate organized by the Cyber Peace Institute. And it was all about cyber warfare and the idea that the war in Ukraine has become a kind of test kitchen for cyber warfare. We could see it happening. Things that we didn't expect to happen happened. Some things people say that we did expect to happen didn't happen. Very pleased to have Charlotte Lindsay, who is Chief Public Policy Officer at the Cyber Peace Institute. What we're going to do is talk a little bit about some of the key points raised in that debate and dig a bit deeper. What is cyber warfare? What do we need to worry about? What do we need maybe not to worry about? Where I'm going to start is At this discussion, we had opening remarks from NATO, from Christian Lifflender. He said, although we may not have noticed it, thinking that there wasn't much Russian cyber activity in Ukraine at the start of the conflict was a dangerous misdiagnosis. Cyberspace has been central to the war in Ukraine. It has been used to shape the battle space. Cyber attacks were used to lay the ground for the invasion to disable the Ukrainian communications and the ability uh, for the government to communicate with its people and to distort the narrative through disinformation. In recent months, you have also seen cyber attacks with data wiping malware continuing to target Ukrainian entities in government, commercial and energy sectors to paralyze computer systems. Charlotte, let me ask you that because in the weeks ahead of February 24th and the build-up on the border, we were all told they'll do cyber as well, they're sure to do cyber as well. And yet it seemed that not a whole lot happened. Why does NATO now tell us that it's a dangerous misdiagnosis? I agree with NATO. I think it's a dangerous misdiagnosis. The Cyber Peace Institute has been monitoring and aggregating attacks against critical infrastructure in Ukraine since the beginning of the military invasion in, in February 2022. And we've monitored so far 626 cyber attacks against critical infrastructure across 34 different countries. And I think that where the misdiagnosis is is reflected is this sense that everybody was expecting when cyber was used in warfare, that there would be some cataclysmic major humanitarian impact of the use of cyber. And so that because that hasn't been seen, that cyber hasn't had the same impact that everybody expected in warfare. 
what is clear from what the Cyber Peace Institute has been monitoring is that cyber attacks have been used alone and in conjunction with kinetic warfare. And so it's this combination of attacks and it's also the sequencing and timing of attacks that are happening just before the military invasion, for example, or just before a kinetic attack or in at the same time as a kinetic attack, which is having an impact both on in terms of where the targets are, for example, critical infrastructure, or also against the, the defenses that have been put in place by, in this case, Ukraine or other countries that have been the victim of cyber attack. So I think it's the absence of, of a large scale cyber attack with humanitarian implications that has led to this misdiagnosis or misperception that cyber hasn't been a critical part of this warfare. Well, that's really interesting. And what I wanted to bring in there, because you've given a picture of us, we also heard at the debate from Max Smeets, who very closely monitored what was going on in the weeks around the start of the conflict. Now, Max is a senior researcher at the Centre for Security Studies in Zurich, he kind of laid it on the line about what happened. The operational tempo of uh, the Russian forces, particularly when it comes to what we call the use of wipers, data destructive malware, the number of variants that we have seen since February is quite astonishing. We're now at 14 different variants uh, to my count. You see this rapid development of malicious software that was actually in some ways quite targeted, quite specific for doing just one task, relatively small pieces of code. So there's been quite a few data breaches, of course, the regular DDoS attacks, and there is a set of activities that is less clear to observe, and it's kind of around the shaping of the environment. And in the case of Russia, what we have seen are very specific efforts to also make sure some of the key parts of the Ukrainian internet will be connected to the Russian internet that then provides them for new ways of ownership, control, and monitoring. Clearly, what we know is that cyber operations were conducted in parallel to kinetic operations uh, since uh, late February. We can commonly distinguish between two different forms of integration, sequential integration. Here, you have a potential cyber operation that subsequently enables the use of kinetic force. You might influence a radar system, so your non-stealthy aircraft can still go through airspace and potentially achieve an objective on a target. The second type of interdependence is more pooled interdependence. Whilst your tanks roll across the border, there's also a whole set of cyber activities that is going on that kind of has this mashup effect. The first one is the hardest to pull off because of timing that it is required, but it has the greatest benefits as well, this multiplier effect that can be created. The second one is easier to pull off, but is often also based on volume. Roughly distinguished is mostly the second that we have seen from Russia. Charlotte, listening to Max there, is that what modern armies need to be more aware of? It's not going to be, as you said, some massive cyber attack, but a more kind of incremental, a little bit here, a little bit there, do something which will then enable a kinetic attack more easily. The focus has very much been on this notion, as I mentioned, about this cataclysmic attack. 
we should absolutely not rule out. We expect, we hope that this will never happen. And But what we have been seeing, and I think what Max Smith was referring to there, was also this persistent and continuous and synchronized use of cyber across the different targets that, that have been used in the warfare. What he also focused on was that suddenly cyber has really led to this sort of hyper-internationalization and I think that of, of warfare. And I think that's what we critically are seeing here in terms of where the targets have been and also influencing and impacting countries that are not belligerents in the conflict. So yes, it is this persistent and significant and synchronized use of cyber alongside the other domains of warfare. But it's also the fact that cyber, because of the notion of cyber and it being globalized and interconnected systems, that it can very quickly become very internationalized between who are the actors, who are the direct participants in hostilities, who are the indirect participants in hostilities, and what would this mean in terms of particularly the, the cyber defense of a country against threat actors. How does this work then? I mean, you, of course, you used to also work for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Where does a cyber attack, do you think, fit into to international law? Critically, international law applies to the use of cyber. And international humanitarian law, although it's agnostic about the type of weapon that's being used, it's very clear about means and methods of warfare and also that there are clear principles that have to be respected in the use of any weapon in a situation of armed conflict, particularly humanity, proportion, distinction, and precaution. Those are principles that were specifically written in so that we could reduce, minimize the harms to civilian population and those who are hors de combat. And that's critical that we remember this is an international armed conflict, for example, between Ukraine and Russia, and that the laws of war apply. Some people, though, would suggest that we need more focus on the potential of cyber warfare, that we're it's happening, but we're not thinking about it enough and not really making the connection between a cyber attack and an actual war where people actually die. People tend to think of a cyber attack as, oh, it means your computer's down. I think, firstly, it's absolutely essential. If the existing laws and norms were respected, it would be a very good situation. And we have to call and increasingly recall for respect of, of laws and norms that have been agreed on by states. In terms of some of the debates that are happening around the application of international humanitarian law um, to cyberspace or calls for clarifications. Yes, absolutely. We need to look at how cyber is being used in warfare, look at the impact on populations who are outside combat, so civilians, uh, prisoners of war, um, and civilian objects, critical infrastructure essential for the survival of the civilian population. We need to assess how cyber has been used, and we need to call out those breaches, not just in terms of it's a breach of international law, but also how it's breached international law so that we can seek if there are clarifications that are required, we can continue to seek those clarifications and continue to call on states who are responsible for the implementation of law to, to seek, to, to look for those clarifications. What we should not do is cynically say, Oh, this is something new. We've not seen this before. Ergo, current laws and norms don't apply. That's not the case. I mentioned the ICRC for another reason as well. You used to work there. But when you held your debate on cyber warfare, you invited the ICRC. You invited Balthazar Stalin. They had their own experience of 
cyber attack. Let's just have a, a listen to what you have to say. I think for us, it has been a difficult year in the sense that very early in January, we discovered that the ICSC systems of the ICSC were actually attacked. We had a cyber breach with data being compromised of people we try to protect and serve. And this was really a, a massive shock for our institution. So, um, so in this sense, it is a very raw on our mind on how can we ensure that human data is protected. And, and I would argue not attacked in the first place because in the real world, it's relatively easy to attack the ICSC. So the question is, what does that mean in cyberspace? What kind of level of protection do we need? And I think we have to forge a consensus that human data isn't attacked in, in the first place. But if I then look, of course, to also how conflicts evolve and how we observe them, I think what we see is, is, is this, of course, um, layers of different means and technologies that are being used. I think what we see, it's multiple layers that add on top of each other. And that, of course, has a lot of implications in terms of, from the point of view of international maternal law. And, and we clearly believe that in, in, in a situation of armed conflict, regardless of what technology you use, there are clear rules. Luckily, we have these rules, and we have to work towards the implementation of these rules. Rules around distinction, proportionality, precaution, long-standing rules that would make a huge difference if they were respected on all sides. What we then also saw is, of course, critical infrastructure for civilians must be protected. You can take them out by kinetic means, you can bomb them, but you can also totally disrupt them by cyber means. And in, in both cases, we need to find solutions that belligerents, when they wage war, are really mindful of the need that civilians uh, must be respected and their infrastructure also. So I want to come back to this again. If the ICRC is being basically its mission and, and people's trust in it is being undermined by this kind of cyber activity. I don't know if you want to call it cyber warfare. I mean, is everything fair game in cyberspace? No limits? No, there are clear limits in terms of the use of cyber, in terms of peace and war. And we need to, to recognize that. The attack against the ICSE, the International Committee of the Red Cross, in, in January this year, this was an attack that affected its ability to carry out its operations and the data of already highly vulnerable people. And it's very clear that it's important that the humanitarian operations and its ability to carry out its actions are protected and respected in both offline and in, in cyberspace. And the Cyber Peace Institute has been doing a lot of work around protection of the humanitarian sector and also trying to build up cyber capabilities of NGOs so that they are A, able to continue carrying out their operations, but B, also understand how to better protect themselves against a cyber threat, which will happen because cyber threat actors have seen this sector as low risk for high reward. And that has to stop. And there has to be a lot of multi-stakeholder engagement across the board to preserve the space for humanitarian action to be carried out without interruption, and also to ensure that the type of attack that happened against the ICSE doesn't happen again, and that that, that is clearly seen as off-limits. There are norms and there are laws. And I think at the moment, there are very cynical attempts to undermine those and to start to use the notion of cyber being very different or having a characteristics which are very different as implying that all formal rules and norms are off limits. So you were referring specifically to the point where the ICRC's database of missing persons was hacked. 
One other thing, though, specifically related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict is this statement the ICRC put out, and they were public with it, but I think they're not the only aid agency suffering this, talking about an active campaign of misinformation about what they were doing. This also could be regarded as a kind of warfare. So the Cyber Weeks Institute, when we have been looking at, for example, the cyber attacks in Ukraine and Russia, we've categorized four different types of cyber attacks, the destructive attacks, disruptive attacks, data weaponization, and cyber influence operations, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. And because it is incredibly harmful, the, the ability to scale and the scope of misinformation and disinformation, we've seen how this is affecting populations, affecting trust in institutions and affecting the way that the conduct of hostilities are being carried out. So we cannot separate the notion of the cables and the infrastructure from the content that is being used, because that is a, a part of warfare today. Propaganda has always been a part of warfare But what we have seen today is the scale and the scope and the ability to manipulate digital and cyber systems in order to make things look very, very real. And that is leading to a distrust in technology. It's also leading to a distrust in institutions where they feel that they cannot protect their citizens or the civilian population. They cannot control information. So this is an inherent part of warfare today, and we have to recognize that. So what do you think we need to do about it? Just the week before your panel debate on cyber warfare. We had the uh, Microsoft boss in town, Brad Smith. He was talking at the Graduate Institute. Now, the tech companies seem to see a very important partnership coming public-private to tackle this kind of cyber warfare. Do you see it that way? The tech companies are in some ways partly responsible for this problem. Now they're offering to, to sell the solution, it sounds like. I think what is critical is a lot of platforms run by tech companies are the vector for misinformation and disinformation or these influence operations. I think what has come out clearly from the conflict in Ukraine and Russia is just the scale and the extent of cyber operations, which are happening way beyond the boundaries of those countries, the frontiers of those countries and affecting many others. And I think the call is that to recognize really that influence operations, uh, operations which are trying to influence the information space are a part of that warfare. And there has to be increased measures put in place to, to try to counter that, to be able to ensure that information which is trustful and which is, which populations can rely on is able to be uh, visible and accessible to, to populations. And also recognizing that where um, information is being put and, and misinformation and disinformation is being put up, how can that be countered? If it is also illegal or against uh, laws and norms, how can that also be, be taken down? And I think those are critical aspects. As we've seen this, the information space become a critical part of the way war is being waged today. Where do you see your own organization's role in that then? I mean, I think you have been very active calling our attention to this. Governments, tech companies, do you have a, a good communication with them? 
Yes, I mean, we engage with, with actors across the civil society, the tech sector, uh, corporate sector, government, to try to raise awareness of this, to bring this very human-centric awareness of the harms and impact, because often a lot of the harms and impacts are focused around the, either the shutdown time, the lack of operational capabilities, or the financial impact. So we've been very much working around harms methodology, looking at the impact of cyber attacks on people and looking at how we can use that to try to influence policy discussions. Because if we don't understand the human nature of harms and impacts, then the risk is that it does become a focus more on the tech than on the people that are harmed by it. And that's where the, the Cyber Peace Institute is really trying to focus. It's by drawing attention to um, the issues, but also by looking at the ways that we can influence policy and legal debates that are ongoing in diplomatic fora and within uh, the corporate sector to try to, to raise awareness and also to try to bring concrete awareness of, of the impact on, on people and that's very human-centric notion. Okay, we're almost at the end, but I want to play you one last excerpt from that really interesting panel discussion. This was from Patricia Lewis, very senior security expert, part of Chatham House and so on. And she gave this really interesting idea of what developed democracies answer could be? One of the things that we're not doing enough thinking about is how to use this technology and use it in a way that communicates our own values. So if we take this, this whole terrible uh, illegal war, the Western countries and supply of weapons have stuck to their humane approach of, of um, weapon systems, which has been developing now for some decades. So we've increasingly become more accurate uh, with our weapons so that we reduce civilian casualties. Um, we've uh, definitely gone away from uh, you know, the, blast, the blasting of people with landmines, the picking up of custom munitions, and Russia's carried on with those. So I think the communication of the types of weapons that we use and the way in which we use them is really important for who we are, how we want to conduct ourselves, even at the worst possible times in conflict, and I think we need to do the same thing with, with cyber proaction. How do we communicate who we are with our cyber um, capabilities? So we could shut off Russian energy systems. Uh, we could carry out attacks on nuclear power stations, as Russia is doing uh, on nuclear power stations using missiles, which is illegal. But we could also instead use it in a, in a much more constructive way, such as opening up information that the Russian state doesn't want open, right? Uh, sharing the information about, you know, Putin's dealings, for example. We've, we've seen some very clever non-governmental activities that way, just doing really some clever communication work, which says, you know, we've got this capability, we can do this, but we're choosing to do it and we're choosing to use this capability in a way that actually empowers you as a citizenship and also uh, doesn't harm you because this is not what we want to do to you, the Russian people. So I thought that was curious. You're saying we could do this, but do it in a, a positive way, sell our ideas rather than attack the enemy's in tech infrastructure. What do you think about that? Is that a pipe dream or... I mean, I would argue that wars have always been a, a, a propaganda, uh, I've included this propaganda dimension between the different parties where you've been selling the idea of um, what your country brings in terms of whether it's democracy or, or, or other 
domains. I think what is what is really important is to understand that warfare today is also being raged around this information space. So what's the best way to counter that? We have seen in, for example, Ukraine and Russia, that there has been um, you know, control of that information space. So in, in areas that have been occupied, the infrastructure, which has critically been under the control of, for example, Ukraine after the occupation has been russified. So it's become a network to shut down and to control that information space. So the it is really important to look at ways where how do you provide information? How do you access populations? But whilst recognizing there is a very real um, risk coming up of this notion of a splinter net of the inability to actually reach populations um, who are under the control, whether it's because of occupation or because the state has decided to shut down access to the internet or shut down access to information or to close the sorts of information that people can receive. So this, and this can be done on a scale that has never been done before. Right. Final question then. We've watched a war in which for the first time, really, we have seen cyber attacks as a part on both sides of, the, of their their battle strategy. What have we learned for the future? I think it's really important to look at what can be done on that. But also, I think one of the things that came out very, very clearly in the comments that were made by Patricia were around, where is the threshold of what would be considered acceptable by different states or different parties to a conflict? What would be a reaction to something like that? And are we being transparent and clear about what that is? And their calls were to be greater transparency by states about what they consider as an acceptable target or not. And the information space will be considered one of those targets of which we will probably see states which are much more authoritarian, which are trying to close down that, say that that is the the space that they would consider a threshold that's been crossed. So I think we are in this very interesting and very critical, very worrying period of history where we will have to work out continually what are the boundaries of what will be considered as acceptable use of cyber by different states or by parties to armed conflict. And what we as the Cyber Peace Institute are calling for is respect of laws and norms where there is clarification required, then we should, there should be that clarification made. Cyber is not the preserve of any one sector any longer, but that also that we, we should respect the existing laws and norms and where we need clarification, let's work towards that clarification, but let's not undermine existing laws and norms that are there. Charlotte Lindsay of Geneva's Cyber Peace Institute, thank you very much for joining us today. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes. You can hear analysis of the war in Ukraine, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening.
discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.